Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Welcome in to another episode of the podcast. Nice to have you listening along, wherever you may be. And today on the podcast, I have Dr. Karen O'Donnell. And I'm going to get on to introducing that conversation in a moment. But before I do, I also want to give a bit of a nudge to where the, some, of the, some of our upcoming conversations are going to be going, which is around the, the question or the, the complexity of experience and in particular experience of God or spiritual experience. Uh, in our last conversation, we talked with Mark Fennell, who's the, the documentary maker uh, behind the doco, The Kingdom, coming out of uh, Australia, exploring the complicated <laughs> web of, of Australian kind of Pentecostal megachurch experience and, and sort of the, both the potency and the allure of, of that kind of spirituality and that kind of church, and then also some of the, the harm and the abuse and the complications that come out of that. And one of the things that Mark speaks about in the doco and has spoken about since is his own sort of memory of being in those kinds of church spaces and looking around and seeing people having, so many people having an apparent, apparent experience of God, some kind of spiritual encounter. And yet there he was and feeling nothing. And the kind of meaning making that went on inside his own kind of internal conversation around why those people seemed to be experiencing something he wasn't experiencing, you know, was were they pretending? Was was he being left out of something? Was God ignoring him? And what it brought up for us is something that I suppose has been poking its head through a number of times over the last, well, really, since the beginning of this podcast in many respects, but in particular over the last 18 months or so. Uh, and we want to zero in on a little bit more in some upcoming conversations and really explore the complicated nature of spiritual experience itself because... I think for many people, this is perhaps a confusing area of making sense of their own journey. Uh, perhaps there are people who have had profound experiences in the past or that were life-changing or seemed transformative. But then over time, then perhaps their experience has changed or their theology has shifted or they've left the church or uh, they no longer find themselves in those spaces uh, and they're thinking differently about things and now trying to make sense of those past experiences and what might have been happening there. Or for people for whom within those spaces in particular, I'm thinking of like charismatic Pentecostal evangelical spaces where, you know, certain pressures were brought to bear on people as they were sort of supposed to have certain kinds of experiences. Uh, the physicality of some of um, the ways in which people were prayed for and the way in which people were to have those experiences. <laughs> um, and not just sort of the, the complicated phenomena that goes on there, but actually the sort of the meaning making, right? What do we do with that whole arena? How do we make sense of it? How does it intersect with the way that we think about God and the church and what we now know about neuroscience and about how our bodies respond within certain environments? And does that mean all of our spiritual experiences simply have been, you know, <laughs> bodily response to external stimuli or, you know, there's, there's so much to talk about here. And so we are going to spend a little bit of time exploring some of that. So if you've got uh, something you want to share in that regard, uh, flick us a line, feedback at intheshift.com. Uh, and whether it's just questions or, or reflections or stories or experiences that might add to the way in which we shape up those conversations, please do so. So with all of that said, let me talk about today's episode, which is a conversation I had last week as I record this uh, with Dr. Karen O'Donnell. And Karen is a theologian out of the UK who specializes in exploring trauma-informed theology and uh, and has written a lot about this in recent years. And we have a, well, a wide-ranging conversation, I guess, about trauma. And I 
it's you know it's it's a really I think helpful conversation in terms of trying to grapple with what's going on, in particular in relation to people who have experienced religious or spiritual trauma or spiritual abuse within the church, uh, but also how churches can be either harmful or safe um, spaces, uh, even more generally, for people who have experienced trauma. And, uh, you know, this this really does bounce off so much of what we've been exploring in, in recent, the, the last 12 to 18 months on in the shift. And looking at the ways in which uh, it's not just particular isolated traumatic experiences or uh, that that give rise to some of the harm we're seeing in the stories that flow out of the church, but it is also uh, the ongoing lack of safety and continued propagation of harm and trauma within church spaces that is also a significant problem. And some of that is theological. Some of that comes from the actual shape and arc of the way in which Christian uh, theology is conceived in those spaces. Uh, and and so there's lots to talk about here. And, and Karen and I have a conversation that covers, uh, that deals with a lot of it. And then there's a lot more in in her books on the, on the subject. Um, I should give you, I guess, a heads up, a trigger warning, if you if you like, that we, we talk about spiritual abuse in this conversation. We talk uh, a little bit about sexual abuse and sexual assault uh, as well in relation to uh, some of the stories around the church. Uh, and so that is uh, woven through some of this uh, episode. We also talk a bit about miscarriage and infertility and pregnancy loss. So uh, as always, just encourage you to be mindful as to whether or not this conversation will be helpful and healthy for you and what you need right now. Uh, so yeah, take care of yourself. So before we jump into this conversation, let me just remind you again, you can get in touch, feedback at intheshift.com. If you've got a story or an experience or a question you'd like to share, you can support the work of In The Shift by going to patreon.com slash in the shift. Uh, and you can throw us a few bucks a month to help make this thing sustainable, help uh, us keep moving forward with what we're trying to do. And uh, you also get access to a, a, a patrons-only Discord, an online community chat where you can have conversations with other supporters of In The Shift uh, and find some spaces to talk about the things that matter. Uh, you um, can also get in touch with us via the social medias, uh, you know, all the situation if you so desire. And so now is the moment that uh, brings many of you great joy, I know. It's the, uh, the cheap, rough and ready musical interlude that has been a feature of this podcast since episode number one. So there's only one thing left to say. This is episode 82 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Today on In The Shift, I'm joined by Dr. Karen O'Donnell. Karen is the Director of Studies at Westcott House at the University of Cambridge. Her field of research includes trauma theology, feminist theology and liturgy, and she is the author and editor of several books related to trauma and theology. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Karen. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. Uh, now, you are from the UK. I am and indeed. And you're here for a week or so. Yep. It's kind of a compulsory thing that's part of our national um, insecurity issues which is that whenever, any, whenever anyone comes here, we have to say, what do you think of New Zealand? Oh. So, yeah, so is it amazing? <laughs> is it everything you ever dreamed oh, of? Oh, it's so cool. Um, it's a lot colder than I was expecting. I came Last time I, I came to New Zealand just before the pandemic hit in 2020 and I had a month here and it was January and it was hot mm -hmm. and nice. And um, 
actually did not get to spend much time in Auckland when I came. Uh, so this time it has been cold and wet, uh, but I have got to spend time in Auckland and I've just had a wonderful time. It's been great. Oh, good. Uh, if it's any consolation, if you'd come in January, it would have been floods, tornadoes and um, cyclones. So, okay, well, so you didn't miss then out this, this was time pretty now. good. Yeah, yeah. it's not been... <laughs> Uh, perhaps we could start with a bit of a background of your own journey. Um, did you grow up in the religious household? What was your kind of earlier exper- early experiences of faith like and, and how did that evolve over time? Sure. So my family are what I would call culturally Catholic. Um, if you go kind of one generation further back, um, then they're very much uh, practicing, believing Catholics. Um, but my mum and dad both... Uh, went to church, took us to church, um, to the Catholic church, but uh, neither of them particularly have any faith. But it was really important. It's where our community life was. We went to the Catholic uh, primary school and the Catholic secondary school. And um, yeah, all our friends were Catholics. Um, I didn't really know anybody that wasn't a Catholic until uh, I went to university at 18. (laughs) No, that's not true. Um, But (laughs) but certainly, um, yeah, most of my friendship group... um, we're Catholics, we all went to the same kinds of churches. Mm. Um, and my surname's O'Donnell, I'm from an Irish Catholic family. Uh, it's still a really big part of our kind of cultural identity. Um, uh, so I have a small niece who just made her first communion because uh, she's at the Catholic primary school, but n- but not, not that my family are particularly religious. Um, when I was 14, a friend of mine who happened not to be Catholic... Uh, an interloper. She was Methodist. <laughs> uh, she invited me to a um, Christian camp. Um, I didn't really know much about it, but I thought it sounded like a fun week away from my parents. And so I went and I kind of accidentally became a Christian um, whilst I was there. So, um, or what I had what I would would have referred to as a conversion experience where I felt very strongly convicted of my sin. Um, I was 14, so I don't really know how much... Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> so that's, another, that's another question. Yes, um, yes. And from that, I came back and found, uh, I came back to, to my home and found a charismatic evangelical church that I joined at 14 mm-hmm. and left at 30. So, um, yeah, quite the contrast. Yes. Yeah. The big shift from kind of like cultural Catholicism mm-hmm. to immersed in charismatic evangelicalism. Yeah. And in, yeah. in a way that I'd chosen for myself. So the yeah, cultural yeah, Catholicism... Yeah was just who we were mm. and the um the move into the charismatic evangelical church was very much something that I had chosen for myself I went on my own to the church you know none of my family ever came with me mm. um and it was very much my thing and in some ways that was great and in some ways I look back now and think I was 14 and that was not a good place for me to be mm. but um but it was what it was there was good things that came out of it other than kind of a general conviction of sin, <laughs> um, what was it that drew you into that kind of space? Do you think, looking back now, like what it obviously, yeah, even though you can reflect and say, not sure it was the best place for me to be in hindsight, there was obviously it was doing something for you, right? It was, yeah. I, um, I was looking for answers, mm. and they had answers very clear, very black and white answers that. Um, that made a lot, you know, made a lot of sense to me, gave me a kind of place in which I could form my identity. I was a bit of, um, I wasn't a a rebel in any way at all, but I was a bit kind of lost, I guess, in the sense that 
I didn't really know. I was 14. I didn't really know who I was. I struggled with friends. I didn't really have a kind of strong friendship group. Um, my home life was a bit like chaotic, not, not in anything kind of particularly terrible, but just kind of a bit up and down. Mm. And, um, yeah, uh, they were kind and friendly. There was mm. a thriving youth group mm -hmm. that I really loved being part of that were people who were all really excited about God and what it meant to be a Christian. And um, we did things together and that was fantastic. Um, and I love the music. I love the music. I loved how alive the worship was. It was such a contrast. Mm. And I would have at the time probably looked very negatively on the kind of Catholic worship that I'd been exposed to previously as something that was dead. Yes. Um, I don't believe that's true now, but I certainly certainly felt that at the time and that mm. this was something that was alive and true and this was really what god wanted his church to be like um very yeah absolutely kind of sucked in mm. and there's something very compelling isn't there and, really, and aside yeah. from like the strengths and challenges and weaknesses and problems like the there's something quite potent about yeah. the form of spirituality and community that the community that is kind of formed around yeah that and i would say i've been uh, in some ways, it's the community that I have mourned most mm. in my kind of subsequent, it's been a decade since I've been in that kind of church. Mm. Um, and I've, I've missed, I've missed that. I've missed the kind of, um, yeah, the beauty of community and a, um, the kind of strong friendships that come from that. Now that also has its particular weaknesses in the sense that when I left the church, uh, I had no friends because yeah. my entire social life revolved around the church and I had to kind of start afresh at 30. Um, and I, know that, something, I, yeah. I know something of that feeling, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, but, but, the, but yeah, at, at 14 and even at 22, when I was newly married in the church, uh, the community was, was an absolute gift and mm. they were my family. Mm. And... Um, yeah, and the music. I'm a musician, so the the kind of the style of worship, the immediacy of God's presence, the expectation that God would be with us and that mm. God would speak to us, um, and that God uh, wanted relationship with us. Mm -hmm. um, that was really potent. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. totally like. Sometimes I'm quite hard on fourteen year old me, but when I look back, I think, well. There's a lot, a lot of good going on there, and there's lots of things I can look back now and think that's really good, and that's had a long-lasting effect on my own spiritual life and um, the kind of Christian I am today, in, in positive ways. That can be a, a complicated thing for people sure. to do, eh? Right? Yeah. To to look back and try and make some sense of their oh, past self. Yeah, and, and their to past be honest, experiences and... it's taken a, a, a more than a decade. Yeah. I'm I'm like yeah, I'm twelve years out now, yeah. and probably only in the last couple of years that would you find me saying these kinds of <laughs> yeah, things so yeah. yeah it's been a real uh i hate the language but it's been a journey yes yeah at what point in there did you think uh that theological study was something you wanted to like dive into is that where like, the study journey started for you is yeah how so did that unfold? always super bookish and um kind of academically inclined at school so i loved study i loved the i did uh, all humanities subjects for mm -hmm. a kind of higher um, higher exams at school and because it was a Catholic school I actually did a theology A-level um, so that A-levels are the exams we take at 17, 18 years okay. old so yeah. from kind of high school I was studying that and I went off to university to do politics and history and um, 
the course I was on required you to take a third subject in the first year. Um, and I was like, oh, well, I'll take religious studies because when I looked at it, I was like, I've done all that already. So mm-hmm. that'd be super easy. Anyway, turned out, didn't love didn't love the history, although I do love history. I just didn't enjoy the way it was particularly being taught. So I basically switched and um, I did a religious studies and politics degree course. Mm-hmm. Um, two things you shouldn't talk about at the dinner table, yeah, yeah. right? It was super popular. <laughs> um, and then I came, um, I, uh, uh, I got engaged in my final year of study. So I graduated on like the seventh of the month and got married on the 24th of the month. And that was, you know, I got married in the church, mm-hmm. came straight back to the place I had left yeah. and trained to be a secondary school teacher. So I taught religious studies, RE, um, philosophy and ethics. Um, and I did that um, for a few years. And then um, for a whole load of reasons, my marriage broke down. Mm-hmm. I left the church, all happened at the same time. Mm. And um, I'd been really good academically at university I'd come out with an, a first class degree I'd won an award for in religious studies and um I regretted that I hadn't done further study at 22 mm. and so I made the decision that I would quit teaching and go and study a master's degree course um mainly because I wanted to get out of teaching and I couldn't see myself kind of staying for another 40 years in the profession mm-hmm. Um, and from that went in and, um, really loved what I was doing. Massive imposter syndrome, totally insecure, felt at any point they would realize I was completely stupid and ask me to leave, but they didn't. And then, Mm -hmm. and then I'd studied for the PhD and, um, uh, yeah, kind of went, went from there. Um, I think for me, academic study and my spiritual life are completely entwined. Mm. So, um, I've never understood how... It, that's just never been the case for me that I could separate the two out. And so I found the last, uh, so I started my master's degree in 2012. So it's the kind of last 40, uh, 12 years. Mm. The, uh, 11, oh, sorry, I can't do my maths. 11 years. Um, I've been both academically nourishing and also spiritually enlivening for me and kind of brought me to a new place in my own uh, career, but also in terms of my own spiritual life as well. When you were... Uh... So we see you kind of entered into that sort of post previous church kind of that mm. fourteen to thirty kind of church experience. Yeah. Um, had you? Well, what was your experiences? Kind of just as an aside. Yeah. Of attitudes towards like theological study in the kind of space. Oh, you yeah. Were in. Like, so was, was that a, a, a strange step for you yeah. to take in some respects? Well, um, yeah. I mean, I'd left the church by then. Um, but what was interesting to me is that I had worshipped in this church for a long time. Um, obviously there were like four men in charge. Not one of them had a single theological qualification amongst them. Um, probably quite inspirational people though. Um, well, yeah. I mean, at least one of them was. One of them has to be. Yeah, one of them was. Um, and you know, the other guys, they were, they were nice guys. There's nothing particularly Mm. wrong with them, but, but no, um, Theological study was seen as something that was antithetical to a good spiritual life. Mm. So if you wanted to get on with God, you did not need to be going to a secular university and learning, you know, these critical things um, that if you wanted, if you know, your own Bible study or the kind of courses that were provided from the kind of 
group of churches that we belong to, they were the good kind of things for you to mm. do. And quite famously, there was a guy um, within our kind of group of churches who went and did a master's degree. Um, he doesn't have a PhD. I won't name him. Uh, he does have a PhD now, but he was like a, held up as an a, an example of like how amazingly resilient his faith had to be in order to go and study and get this amazing degree. Right. And then he, because he was the one with a qualification, he became this kind of golden boy yes. spokesperson yeah. for the for the um, for the yeah for the group of churches that mm -hmm. we were in. So so yeah, it was it was weirdly um, like would push a lot of books. So had a really thriving bookstall at the church. Yes, um, with very particular kinds of books allowed to be on the bookstall. <laughs> obviously, um, there were certain types of learning that were acceptable, mm. but kind of postgraduate study in theology at a secular university was not one of them um so in in one sense as i left the church it was quite it was liberating in so many ways mm. and one of which was this idea that i felt like i should have done a master's degree at 22 but i'd got married instead and um now was an opportunity for me to um yeah do something that i really wished i'd done at, at the time i i thought i would only do the master's degree which is nine months in the uk um, so I basically have a year out from teaching and then go back. And then fortunately, I was really, really lucky and got um, a fully funded PhD mm -hmm. scholarship, um, which I was delighted with at the time. And it's only now where I'm like, I realize how rare they are. And I, I um, was really, really lucky to get mm -hmm. it. So, um, yeah, it was a it was a real gift. So um, how did how did your theological trajectory at this time take you toward conversations around trauma mm. what drew you there so I didn't really know anything about trauma um and I certainly wouldn't have considered myself to have been someone who was traumatized and then um so one of the things I, ha I haven't said is that the kind of precursor to me both my both my marriage breaking down and me leaving the church is that I had a series of pregnancy losses um so uh getting married young was very strongly encouraged in the mm. church and then uh, the expectation was that you would start to pop out babies as soon as possible. Um, and I really, really wanted to be a mum. So that was no hardship. I really wanted that. Um, and then it turns out my body was not really on board with that. Mm. So I had a series of pregnancy losses, which culminated in a ectopic pregnancy that um, I had ended up having emergency surgery for and kind of it was very touch and go and... Uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of fumbling around the words here, but I nearly died. Mm. And um, when I came back to church, the kind of well, I didn't, I never really quite came back to church. But when church kind of people from church came and visited me, there was very much a kind of oh well, as soon as you're feeling better, you can try again. And I was like, I nearly died mm. doing this, and I don't feel ready to do that. I'm not sure I'll ever be ready to do that. And the um, the kind of pain of infertility, um, and the and the in and the the difficulty in making decisions about what we should do really just kind of broke my um, my husband and I. And mm. uh, he's very happily married and has children and is in a really good place. So I um, I know he wouldn't mind me saying that. Um, so as I um, as I started my PhD. I was going to do my PhD on uh, Mary, Jesus's mother, 
and the Eucharist. So my PhD was supposed to be entitled The Flesh of Mary and the Body of Christ, which mm. I still think is a really good title for a PhD. Um, and I did do a little bit of work on that. But about a month into my PhD studies, my supervisor, um, Professor Siobhan Garrigan, um, she said, oh, um, my friend Serene Jones has written this thing on pregnancy loss, actually. You should read it. You'll probably really enjoy it. It's quite good. Um, and it was a bit of an aside comment at the end of a supervision, I was walking out the door and I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I'll, I've never really read anything on pregnancy loss. And actually, when I'd experienced miscarriages, I'd gone to the bookstall to find something to read and there was nothing. And so that I'd been really, um, I'd been really upset at the time because I remember thinking, oh, but this is really hard for me and nobody's written about it. That must mean it's not very important. Mm. Um, anyway, I read this thing by Serene Jones. It was just a chapter. And it blew me away. It was taking embodied experience seriously. It was taking this experience of pregnancy loss seriously. It was it was suggesting that there might be, not that kind of finding theological meaning in it makes it okay, but that there might be some theological meaning in it that would be significant for us as Christians uh, or some kind of revelation in it. And that this would be, a this isn't, well, certainly in her experience, was a traumatic experience and we could um, use the lens of trauma to think theologically through what had happened. And that sent me off on an absolute spiral. I remember coming back to my um, coming back to my supervisor um, three or four weeks later. I'd supposed to be, I was supposed to be writing this review um, of a book on liturgy and sacraments or something like that. And I basically ended up writing a trauma-informed <laughs> review. And I was like, Siobhan, I'm really sorry. I don't know what happened. This is just what was in my head at the time. And she was like, oh, this is interesting. And we kind of went from there. Unfortunately, right. I had just these amazing supervisors, Siobhan and um, Morwenna Ludlow was my other supervisor, who were both trusted me enough to let me go. Um, and then were really uh, just gracious and kind to work with me through the um, kind of mess that I kicked up when I started diving into thinking about what it might mean to think, uh, particularly for the PhD, I was thinking about Mary, Jesus's mother, as someone who might be a trauma survivor and that the Eucharist itself might both have traumatic elements to it, but also might be a place of post-traumatic remaking as well. Um, and yeah, that that PhD, which I eventually published as Broken Bodies, is, was very much me kind of working out some theological foundations for where I stood mm. now um, and de dealing with a lot of the kind of emotion that had had come. I remember one of my supervisors saying, oh, Karen, are you going to be able to talk about this PhD in your Viva without crying? My other supervisor going, well, what does it matter if she cries? Does it matter? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, that's okay. I didn't cry in the end, but I did feel like I had, feel like I had the permission to do so had I needed to. It's, for those who haven't done a PhD, it's no small thing to like change direction like that, is it? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Especially when you got funding because you'd made a particular proposal. Yes, And exactly. that's what they'd given yeah, you yeah, the money yeah, for. Right. Um, I just, we never told anybody. And when I said, <laughs> like, it's too late now because it's all, it's, I don't, don't know why I feel anxious. But we never told anybody. And just on the day I submitted it, it just had a different title. Um, but fortunately, you submit it to like the admin people and they were like, yeah, sure, right, cool, yeah. stamp, done. Um, so I feel like the funding body... Like, 
I don't know if they ever checked. Anyway, <laughs> too late now. <laughs> too late now. Absolutely. They can't take it back from me. They can't you, take it back from me. <laughs> take the money back. <laughs> do you have a dream? Do you have a dream in the middle of the night that you know you're suddenly being found out? Well, I will you... now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so okay, let's let's think about trauma more specifically then, um, and and maybe how you understand mm. that term itself because it's one of those words perhaps that that we use a lot, but probably with pretty fluid. Um, oh meaning. yeah, right. I couldn't right. find a car parking space. It was so traumatizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, and so that can sometimes also lead people to kind of dismiss talk mm-hmm. of trauma as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you think about the language of trauma or what we're meaning when we say that? So I usually, when I'm talking about trauma, I usually want to point out that I'm I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm not a psychologist, I don't have any medical qualifications. Um, it's not in my um, experience or gifting to diagnose anybody mm. with trauma. So I am always keen to not be someone that gatekeeps trauma. So if somebody feels like what they have experienced is traumatizing, then I'm usually pretty happy to to go with that. Mm. I think when I'm, um, I the work that I've done has been really influenced by the kind of trend of trauma studies that's come through from kind of history, psychology in the 1970s through into English literature and history in the 90s and kind of hits, theology is always 20 years behind, so it hits <laughs> theology in the kind of 2000. Um, and I usually talk about trauma theology as being a post 9-11 endeavour. Uh, although of course Christianity has always been interested in suffering, but I would draw a distinction between the two. Mm-hmm. Between the two. So, when I'm talking about trauma, um, there's a whole load of definitions that you can use, but it's a very slippery word, um, and it and it's a very slippery thing. So, um, uh, I think having a kind of fluidity to your understanding of it is really useful. Um, a kind of an idea of trauma as being something that overwhelms the ordinary coping mechanisms that somebody mm-hmm. has is really helpful. Um, and in the kind of theological work that I do, I've talked a lot about trauma causing a number of ruptures within the person. So trauma um, ruptures a sense of um, bodily integrity, which can be really um, obvious. So a bullet in the body is a, an obvious kind of rupturing of bodily integrity, mm. but it's important, uh, theologically speaking at least, to to think of the body as this holistic thing that body, mind are all part of the same being. So kind of don't I don't want this kind of dualism between mm. body and mind. And so a psychological rupture can be a rupture to bodily integrity as well. Mm. So um, so this rupture in bodily integrity, a rupture in, a, in an experience of time so that the past continues to invade the present. So you might find that in forms of like nightmares, hallucinations, flashbacks. Um, and then a rupture in kind of forms of language and cognition. Um, this That you uh, perhaps struggle to articulate what's happened to you, struggle to recall what's happened to you, or it might be recalled in piecemeal kind of um, jigsaw-like um, fashion, it might be really difficult to put it into a linear kind of um, uh, ex, um, explanation of what's mm-hmm. happened, um, but also that it defies integration into your sense of self. But the most important thing is that it is trauma is corporeal. It's something that is embodied. Mm-hmm. So there are some fantastic pieces of work done looking at the kind of ways in which the experience of trauma literally tra- changes kind of how your brain reacts, um, mm-hmm. changes 
uh, your kind of endocrine system is work is working, um, which just causes things like dissociation, um, a kind of inability to um, self-regulate and inability to um, understand what your own emotions are. Mm. So uh, whilst I'm not gatekeeping, I'm usually I'm usually interested in kind of embodied symptoms. Right. Um, and the embodied experience. Um, sometimes trauma can be really over theorized and it sounds some you know becomes something that's very abstract. Mm -hmm. um, I think as a theologian that's really interested in bodies, um, yeah, the kind of embodied experience of trauma is where I am usually wanting to kind of focus my mm. interests. Um, but generally speaking, I'm not really talking about kind of whether or not people have got a formal diagnosis of PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, the inequalities in healthcare mean that most people who have what might actually be PTSD are never going to get a diagnosis of yeah. it. Um, and yeah, the kind of um, uh, not really talking about it's you know it's not my responsibility to diagnose mm. people. Mm. Um, I think trauma is becoming much better, uh, not necessarily understood because I think it is still quite elusive, but it's certainly. Um, people are more willing to talk about it. And mm. so uh, I think people generally have a good sense of whether or not they're trauma survivors. One of the things that's come through a lot in um, the many stories that I've been told or heard or sent over the last, particularly 12 to 18 months, we've mm -hmm. been talking more specifically yeah. about some of these things, um, is, a, is a sense of how hard it is to explain yeah. the experience. Yeah. Um, and... It seems like what has resonated for people in a sense is just giving like language for their experience has yeah. meant something, you know. Um, I actually, when I was, when I was a young man uh, <laughs> and I originally studied science and I had just done a, a small postgrad research project around emotional trauma and mm. um, psychoneuroimmunology and so immunological response to, to you know, bodily threat. Mm. Uh, and there was some suggestion, now I'm well out of date now on my sites, uh, but I know even then, which was, you know, 20-ish more years ago, um, that even in the research that I was doing at that time, and I'd be interested, perhaps I should, I should probably follow the, the trail <laughs> and see where it's gone since then, but um, there, was, there was a whole lot of work around like writing about your, mm. writing about trauma mm. and, and what that experience did for the body, uh, and and there was a hint, or at least a suggestion at that time, that the less um, people were able to clearly put into words their experience, the the sort of more challenging their immunological system was kind of yeah. responding, and the more clear that they were able to kind of articulate their experience, the the better their kind of system was, was yeah. responding. It was pretty tentative yeah. at the time, but it wouldn't surprise me if that is in some way connected. Yeah, right? I'm sure. I'm sure it is, and there's there's some. Such interesting work, particularly now around like epigenetics of trauma and right. the way in which the kind of um, uh, the kind of mother's body might pass uh, a trauma response onto the in a, you know a, preg a pregnancy, mm -hmm. uh, and that the child then might exhibit some of the same uh, biological responses even at a very young age. Mm. Um, of course, f for many years, there's been an awful lot of research into um, second, third, fourth generation Holocaust survivors mm -hmm. who also exhibit symptoms of PTSD or trauma responses, despite the fact that they've never been in situations where they might have mm. uh, acquired such responses. So we know that there is a strong biological connection to um, 
to trauma. It's, a, it's an embodied thing, right? Um, yeah. And um, so what's interesting in terms of the processing is that there's been a lot of, um, for a long time, there's been a lot of emphasis on kind of telling your story that you might sit down with a therapist and um, articulate uh uh, what your story looks like and bring it into a kind of acceptable form in the sense that it's got a beginning, middle and end. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds the same every time you tell it, so it's got a consistency within it. Um, and then there's more and more research now being done to suggest, I mean, we, we don't we don't have to look very far to realise that's a very Western yeah, right. epistemological mm-hmm. kind of approach to trauma, that it needs to have this linear form and consistency, mm-hmm. whereas actually... Um, there's some really interesting work kind of being done in post-colonial trauma studies, which is leaning much more on non-linear forms of meaning making that are artistic, creative, more more embodied. So forms of dance, um, forms of artistic expression Mm. um, as being culturally more significant um, than perhaps enforcing this kind of Western linear way of meaning making kind of a to z mm-hmm. um and yeah there's a whole load of really interesting work being done around cultural experiences of trauma mm. because of course trauma doesn't manifest in the same way uh can be a response to cultural experiences as well as individual experiences and um what meaning making looks like in different cultures uh is mm. really significant mm. in terms of then what post-traumatic remaking might look like mm. Um, I was thinking as you're talking about the the epigenetics, mm. the, the idea that we now have, because again, I was doing my science at a time when the, the human genome had just been mapped. Yeah. And so everyone was excited because they were going to figure out how everything worked. Yeah. And then they realized they were more confused than they were before. <laughs> um, but in epigenetics has been a new area of study sure, since I yeah. was studying. But this idea that things can actually switch on mm. or off and that that can then have a, a downstream impact. And I was thinking as you're talking about like the – it gives us perhaps some language to start to talk about um, some of the larger systemic forms of trauma. Yeah. Um, whether it's colonization, yeah, whether it's um, segregation mm-hmm. or slavery or, you know, some of those things where there is a temptation, um, perhaps more than a temptation mm-hmm. among some, to be like, that's all in the past now because we stopped doing that, yeah. right? Um, and aside from the fact that in lots of ways they, that's not they, true. That's, yeah. they haven't stopped doing it, it's just different forms. Yeah. But there's also a, a, an, a, an assumption in built into that, mm-hmm. that, oh, but that happened to, you know, your parents' generation, so yeah. that's, that's yeah. not going to affect you, is it? Yeah. So why can't you just get take some personal responsibility? And, yeah. and so it seems like what you're talking about there actually has yeah, I great, think, great way to open up the space. for I th- Yeah, that, in, right? two, in two ways, right? Because I think the epigenetics is one form of that, which is really, really significant. And um, But the, I think uh, Jeff, so Jeffrey Alexander's really been a kind of leading voice in cultural trauma. And the work he's doing, I think, in combination with the kind of more scientific discoveries around epigenetics and the kind of transmission of trauma, um, just does so much to help us see that um, yeah, trauma isn't something that's just in the past. Mm. It's, it is making itself present both individually and corporately, uh, you know, every, every moment of every day. Mm. Um, and that's particularly true in um, perhaps in certain communities that have had significant experiences. But I think post-COVID, um, there's been some really interesting research around COVID as a kind of mass trauma event mm. Mm. and that... Um, yeah, we're only just beginning to kind of see the uh, 
um, the impact that that has had on kind of, you know, societies around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you, as you've been working through field of trauma and theology, I'm going to guess that's a yes, um, <laughs> but have you bumped into like spiritual and religious trauma along oh, yeah. the way there? And how would you kind of um, talk about that as a kind of a specific or a certain form of trauma, I suppose? Is there anything kind of particularly distinct or unique about mm. religious and spiritual trauma? Um. In some ways, religious and spiritual trauma is exactly, you know, it's it's forms of coercive control and mm. forms of domestic violence that are really not unique in any way, shape or form. But I think what's important around spiritual abuse particularly is the way in which your identity is connected in with, with the, the kind of perpetrating of the abuse yeah. in that... Um, this isn't something incidental. This isn't something you kind of accidentally kind of walked into. This is, um, you know, forms of relationships that are identity creating and meaning making. Mm. And and I think, um, I don't think that's entirely unique to spiritual abuse as a form of trauma, but I do think it's something that um, is felt very deeply yeah. within within that, Yeah. Um, and the research around spiritual abuse as a form of trauma is only really just getting mm. is only really just getting going. So the focus has primarily been on um, things like uh, sexual abuse mm -hmm. um, and uh, kind of war. So people kind of coming out of military right. experiences or um, people that are impacted. So civilians that are impacted by wars has been quite a lot of work work done around mm. that so really just taking the field i think is just taking its first steps into form ex mm. exploring forms of spiritual abuse um not that there's any shortage of data on it sure i can imagine mm. uh i don't have to imagine no you know uh, you know, know you've had the stories yeah, you yeah, know yeah. yeah the um i suppose one of the things that that comes through sometimes in those conversations is that there isn't necessarily like a one or two specific like incidences no. to to point to and say mm -hmm. this person mm. did that thing yes yeah um, so it's even harder to articulate yeah right? is there, yeah, is there, yeah. is there particular forms of i mean I, I think there are different ways of thinking about trauma even yeah yeah so like, we might yeah you might um increasingly we're talking about kind of chronic or complex forms of trauma mm. so um i find the kind of phrase chronic trauma to be quite helpful to think mm -hmm. about so often we think about trauma as the kind of one-off event so you know i was walking in a parking lot and somebody jumped out and mm. attacked me and raped me and it's stranger you don't know them it's a one-off it's very unlikely to happen again um and it's this kind of very specific moment in your life um i don't think that's what i mean that that can be traumatizing. I don't think that's the only way we can think about trauma. Mm. So if we think about something like a coercive control relationship, which in the UK is now a criminal offence, um, which I don't think right. it is here in the no. in New Zealand, um, that's a chronic form of trauma. That can be years of mm. nothing particular and everything uh, every mm. day, um, causing those ruptures within the within the individual. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, if you were thinking about kind of racism, you might talk about a kind of, you know, a lifetime of experiencing microaggressions mm, mm. as a chronic form of trauma. 
Uh, complex trauma tends to be a more of a medical term, so I tend to try and not use it because it's right. not a, it, it has a particular kind of diagnosis behind yeah. it, which is, um, yeah, not something I'm kind of engaging with. But chronic trauma, yeah, this low-level kind of insidious, mm. nothing in particular kind of trauma that maybe kind of escalates every once in a while, but actually is really difficult to articulate, but but there is a threat to life in mm. there. There's a kind of threat to bodily integrity. Mm. There's a, um, yeah, a breaking of the self that's happening in that. Um, you know, you find that very strongly in kind of forms of domestic abuse and, yeah. that go on for years and years. I think you find it very strongly in churches. Yeah. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that you can be made to feel silly for Absolutely. bringing up, yep. for raising... Um, you go to talk about it or explain it or complain. Or, yeah, and, and the thing in itself sounds like nothing sounds, at all. Yeah, yeah, why are you making such yeah. a big deal? Yeah. So clearly you're, the yeah. issues at your end. Yeah, you're right. too so, emotional, yeah. you're too sensitive, um, mm. which is one of the reasons why I'm, um, when I'm, whenever I'm teaching on trauma, I always really want people to understand that there's no such thing as a traumatic event, but there's only kind of, traumatic experiences of particular events so we can't look at one particular thing and say that's trauma and that's not mm. um but rather we have to allow people to recognize how what their experience of that thing has been like and allow them to claim trauma for themselves um mm. rather than expecting this thing to be traumatic and that thing not to be traumatic i think it's really good Mm. Uh, I have to remind myself regularly of that. Um, and I think it's really good practice for for anyone who's interested in mm. thinking about trauma. Because we can assume, oh, that person heard that belief preached or experienced mm-hmm. that particular thing or whatever it is. So therefore they obviously will be traumatized yeah. and, and they may not be. And they may not be, uh, yeah. Or other people who seem to sail through fine. And so if there are people who aren't sailing through fine, yes. then, then it's their fault. Yeah. Because look at Johnny over here who's... Yeah. Just, he's a champ. Yeah. He's just, you know. And because he is, that means there's something wrong with you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so we need to remember a whole load of things, right? That trauma is embodied, that there's a biological response system that's going on there that's not to do with how weak or how sensitive Mm. or how emotional you are particularly, but it's to do with a whole load of genetic things that you're not necessarily able to control. It's There's a whole load of um, experience kind of within that of, you know, what's happened to you in the past, what your kind of levels, I hate the word resilience um, because I think it's used as a kind of um, way of making people put up with shit. Um, But but there is a kind of um, emotional resilience that... um, that you build up over your lifetime and how easily is that overwhelmed by this particular thing that you've experienced. It's just people often, I often hear people saying things like, oh, um, you know, this particular thing was a trauma experience, was a traumatic event. Um, And therefore the assumption that everybody who went through that has come out the same way, Mm. just just isn't true. Mm. We need to take individual experiences into account. It's interesting to reflect on um, resilience as you use that word because I I understand like how it can be intended mm. and and be used oh, yeah, in yeah. in helpful ways right right but there is a sense too in which it's kind of we have to we we deal with a lot right and and then we have these big kind of systemic forces that mm-hmm. that create sometimes very challenging like mm-hmm. life circumstances or conditions mm-hmm. for life mixed with other things people closer to us yeah. have then done. 
it feels like sometimes resilience can be a placing of the responsibility for all of your kind of possibility to be an okay person and to survive this is kind of placed back on it. So not only are yeah. you like the recipient of all yes. of this action, you then also have to kind of develop all of this resilience yes. to then survive it. Mm. Um, and that seems yeah. unfair in some ways. Yeah. And one of the things, so one of my jobs, uh, work at a theological college training priests, training people to be come priests in the Church of England and every year I have to write a report on how they've been doing and one of the things I have to report on is how resilient they are and I I find that really difficult because I don't it's not that I don't want them to be resilient in the sense that I don't want them to feel like they're falling apart all the time mm, mm. but I also don't want to to be kind of helping to form people who will just put up with things because that's what it means to be resilient and that's yeah, what the yeah, church yeah. Structures are looking for. Mm. I'd rather be creating people or helping to form people who are able to challenge mm. systemic injustice, mm. um, rather than be resilient. I find it, yeah. I find it really quite an offensive, and it's become such a thing post COVID. Of mm-hmm. um, you know, oh, we have these resiliency lectures, and it's basically just like here's 90 minutes on why you've got to do better at putting up with how awful things are. Well, I'm really interested in yeah. that very much. Yes, <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, you know, as you think about like forming people, like going to say like ministry or priesthood mm. or whatever, um, I wonder if there's a temptation in that to then be forming people who, you know, have less sensitivity and empathy than they might otherwise have if what we're focused on is like trying to get them to like tough it out yeah um no matter what comes their yeah. way and that will kind of flow through into the Absolutely. way that they minister yeah. and lead yeah. people yeah right? yeah you can't help yeah yeah the, kind of the way you're formed has an impact on then how you're forming mm. other people mm. um yeah i don't i don't love it as a <laughs> as a, a criteria against yes. which i'm supposed to to make judgments yeah. for yeah. students that i care about mm. incredibly deeply yeah so I want to get on to kind of theology and trauma mm. and, and that conversation. Before I do, I, f- I feel like perhaps in light of some of this. So we've got like, um, I know the Royal Commission mm. in New Zealand sure. has been dealing with sex yeah. abuse yeah. in the church, sexual abuse in the church here, and the findings of that are sort of coming out later this year, I think. Uh, maybe um, next year even, next right? Year, yeah. yeah. Um, in Australia, that's yeah. already happened, and they're kind of dealing yeah. with the the... Fallout wake of and the yeah. fall, fallout and, yeah. and, and so on. Um, has a similar thing happened in the UK? Yeah, yeah, well, yes, um, and is continuing to yeah. happen. Mm. So there is um, what's called the ICSA, I can't now remember what it stands for, um, review, which uh, was undertaken in the church looking at sexual abuse su- mm. um, survivors and... Um, supposed to be bringing various people to some form of justice but I'm not sure how successful that's been and I think the survivors are quite critical of the pro- the ICSA process um just maybe two months ago there was a um another disclosure in the, the big disclosure in the Church of England about um a church leader called Mike Pilavacci who had been leading um Soul Survivor which was a really um prominent um Oh, it was a Christian festival, but then had kind of um, lots of teaching, lots of music, lots of kind of volunteer opportunities for like young people all attached to it and um, some very credible 
sexual abuse accusations levelled mm. against him, which has really hit quite a lot of people very hard because it was a very prominent movement that was very, um, a lot of people were kind of recognised as being really significant in their own mm. teenage years and their spiritual mm. lives mm. kind of growing up. And um, yeah, it's, there's a kind of spiritual abuse element to that as well, mm. I think, as, as I understand it. Um, and the the kind of sense is that um, we've not even begun to kind of really uh, encapsulate the full extent of, mm. of not just sexual abuse, but spiritual abuse. Mm. And I think in some ways the spiritual abuse stuff is more important because I do believe that it is the spiritual abuse that enables everything else to happen. Mm, yeah. So if you can set that abusive spiritual foundation, mm. those abusive spiritual relationships and dependencies, that gives the space for um, for sexual abuse, for financial abuse, mm. you know, for physical violence um, to to all be acceptable within the church because there is this basis of of spiritual um, spiritually abusive relationships mm. that. Uh, yeah kind of making the way for everything else and i don't think we've scratched the surface of that yet yeah it's um <sighs> yeah it's uh, yeah it's it's yes yeah. sighing is the is the physical response yes um yeah there seems to be like power dynamics mm. at, at work here yeah that Absolutely. have yeah. and i think they have there are a lot it seems to me that there are there are power dynamics and then kind of practices or mm. um, ways of then building ministry yeah. um, that have become normalized mm. in these kinds of spaces. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's like a significant problem, right? Because, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's, it's not just, oh, we know we, like there are, there are certain things that mm. happen. We say people shouldn't have done that. Yeah. So shouldn't have punched that person in the face. Yeah. That was bad, you know. Um, and yet it seems like in the realm of kind of spiritual abuse and abuse of power in mm. these spaces, so much of that is still being taken as the right way to go. It's just that we've had some people do some bad things, yeah. but the, there's nothing wrong with no. what we're trying to do. And I, I guess I, I saw this as, as, as well as, you know, stuff came out over this part of the world yeah. around Hillsong and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, similar yeah. churches in Absolutely. New Zealand, similar yeah. kinds of yeah. stories and this kind of thing. Oh, we need to just get back. To personal holiness and our mm. leaders just need to get back to being yeah. better people um, and let's not kind of critique the the system itself that we're building and yeah. the forms of power dynamic embedded within these yeah. institutions we're in a, that we're building. You know, a church that, or an institution that relies on hierarchy, mm. the hierarchy is just built into it and, um, and it's a patriarchal hierarchy that mm. has um, certain particular people are able to kind of ascend and have... Uh, God-given authority mm. over other people. Um, and that comes with a whole load of racism and sexism and ableism and, yeah, a whole load of of um, stuff that means kind of the, the way in which authority is given space within Christianity almost makes forms of abuse inevitable. Mm. Mm. Um, and I don't know what we do with that. Mm beyond ripping it all up and starting again. But it's not just a few bad apples. The yeah. system creates a space in which this is repeatedly inevitable. Mm. So how do we, you know, as I know you 
Oh no, don't ask me, how do we fix it? No, 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 no. I'm not going to ask you how you fix it. Um, <laughs> I think it, that's, a, that's a long... Uh, that's on, a whole ongoing, other conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I am interested in, as you, because you write and talk about trauma and theology mm-hmm. and the church's role and, mm. and potentially as being spaces of healing mm. and, uh, yeah. and so on. How do, you, how do you grapple with the tension of like, because I want to get on to talk about that, but I yeah. guess first it's just, how do you sit with that tension of the church as, as this kind of potential space for mm. remaking in mm-hmm. your language um, or for healing or for reconciliation or for whatever mm. language we might want to put around that for people or just simply being a space into which victims of trauma can yeah. come in and find find a community that's going to be helpful at the very least yeah. instead of yeah. um, pro- further propagating harm. Um, how, do, how, do we, how, do we, how do you grapple with the tension of having this aspiration for the church and then sitting here and seeing the church as kind of being the, the site of so much yeah. trauma? Um, yeah. do you, how yeah. do you kind of... So it's, well, a few things. Firstly, I think the church needs to, the church is a site of trauma. It is the cause of trauma. It is the perpetrator of trauma, both the church institutionally and also the church as kind of represented by individual people in positions of leadership usually. Um, So how do we, how do we reckon with that? Well, the church needs to, the church needs to be able to uh, have a bit of self-awareness and recognize that the place for some people to do that remaking is not going to be the church mm. and it will may never be the church yeah. and they may never come back. And that's the price. That's not really the right language. That's, that's something the church needs to simply accept um, that it's burnt its bridges with some people. Um, and that, that the, just, ulti- the ultimate goal cannot can't, be... The ultimate the, goal can't be to get back people here. back in yeah. church. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And re- recognising that people might continue to have a thriving Christian faith that does not take place within the church. Mm-hmm. And that there are, interestingly, more and more communities um, of people who have left the church but not left the faith, mm. um, particularly finding kind of expression in um, in digital spaces, which I think is really significant. Um, podcasts have been really good for that as well. So <laughs> it's really good. Um, uh, the thing that gives me hope are the individual priests that uh, I'm working in the Anglican mm. Church, so particularly working with priests. The individual priests and lay leaders who get it and who perhaps uh, in often cases are trauma survivors themselves, various different forms of trauma, um, who uh, who understand what it means to be trauma-informed and are and are committed to that as being part of their ministry. And the, that's the thing that gives me hope is, is that the institution actually, I don't know how we fix that, but I I know so many good priests who are doing good things mm-hmm. and who are caring for people in ways that will help with remaking. Um, they tend to be women. Um, they're often trauma survivors themselves. Um, they're not, not exclusively, not exclusively women, but um, but certainly the kind of balance in my experience has lent led lent in that direction. Um, they tend to not have much influence outside of their own particular parish, so they're doing little things themselves. Mm. They're having big impacts for individual people, mm. um, but but there isn't a kind of recognition that that's what's happening, kind of in the larger scale of the church. 
Church of England, as I'm sure you probably know, is currently obsessed with who's sleeping with who um, and who's not allowed to sleep with mm. who and who we bless when they sleep with various people. And I really wish we could get past it because actually it's such an unimportant conversation to have. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the... Um... I guess I'm I'm interested then in in like what what trauma informed theology looks like, or, or what you're trying to do mm. in this field of mm-hmm. theology and trauma. How do these yeah. things kind of sit together? Can you yeah. speak a bit to that? I can. So, um, <coughs> trauma theology looks like lots of different things. It's <laughs> kind of been an emerging field for the last kind of twenty years or so, and I would say it's a burgeoning field now which is fantastic there's now so much stuff being published that it's really hard for me to keep up with it and I think that's a really good mm-hmm. a good sign when I first started my PhD it was like eight books to read and I read them all and then I was like <laughs> right okay I've read all of the work in trauma theology um the kind of work I'm doing in trauma theology is is based on taking the experience of the trauma survivor seriously as a starting point from which to do theological work mm. um I'm entirely convinced that all theology is embodied theology every single theologian that's ever written has written out of their own embodied experience Mm. they've just done either a good or a shit job at um uh acknowledging that right Uh, so even bart and his kind of volumes of uh, church dogmatics uh reflects a particular context Mm. and a particular embodied experience um and it's very different to my embodied experience Mm. so um with that in mind, and one of the things that's really interesting is that a lot of work in trauma theology is written by theologians who are trauma survivors themselves mm. as well. So they are recognizing that the embodied experiences they have had have an impact on how they do theology. They think theologically in different ways than somebody who hasn't experienced trauma. Mm. Um, so what I'm trying to do in my work in trauma theology is to make explicit the impact that trauma has on how we think theologically. Mm. So um, the book that I published in 2022 was called The Dark Womb, and the subtitle of that is... um, I've forgotten it. (laughs) 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 The subtitle... Hang on, what's the subtitle? It's something like... Re- oh, that's it. Reconceiving trauma in their light of pregnancy, in the aftermath of pregnancy loss or something, like, or reproductive loss, something like that. So basically, <laughs> I forgot my own book titles. <laughs> basically, um, it's uh, um, part, It's me kind of pro- processing my own experiences of pregnancy loss and reflecting on how that impacts on how I understand and encounter and engage with Uh, different theological doctrines so Mm. there's a chapter on providence there's a chapter on prayer there's a chapter on hope and there's a chapter on um the body and in each of those chapters i unpick uh the way in which the experience of of trauma means that the traditional ways in which these kinds of theologies are constructed traditional ways in which we understand them actually don't do justice to the experience of the trauma survivor Mm. and that from the experience of the trauma survivor in this case my own trauma there is space to uh reimagine what theology looks like Mm. so um 
always say to my students, theology isn't divinely given, it is human made and therefore it can be wrong and it can need correcting. Yeah. And in fact, it should continually need correcting and working on. Um, and that's what I see myself doing. Mm. Um, um, I'm a builder, a construct constructor of theology and my aim is to build something that people can live in and thrive in and not be re-traumatised by. Mm. Um, so I have... Uh, in the book, kind of, um, yeah, uh, some thinking about what pregnancy loss is, why it's not really been talked about in theology, and then these chapters on the doctrine. And then uh, the final chapter is on, uh, is titled How, um, How Then, it's known, I can't remember any of my titles today. The final chapter is called Teachers How to Pray. And it is about how then do we pray mm. when we've disrupted these. Mm these theologies and what's the relationship then between our theological construction and the ways in which we pray um, and um, perform and enact and inhabit liturgy. Mm. It's, um, it's always amazing to me how many of these conversations end up taking people back. I suppose um, prayer is such a central thing to the way people have related to God yeah. or thought about their spirituality yeah. um, and how trauma or deconstruction mm. or just Whatever, what crisis, mm. whatever has has come across across our paths, um, disturb the ways that have worked for us. Yeah, and then you, and then you go to reach for the tools in the in the spiritual kind of kit, and find that that doesn't mm -hmm. actually that doesn't work anymore. And so yeah. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. Um. So the the fact that that we're talking about that, I think I think is good. And yeah. and to me, it seems like if theology can't meet someone in trauma in ways that are helpful and Dead of harmful, um, then we need new theology. We need new theology, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and theologies, plural. Yes, so yes. Um, I usually kind of pitch the kind of work if I'm kind of talking in academic circles. Pitch the kind of work I do is um, constructive theology, and constructive theology is very much interested in the kind of plurality of theologies that there might be, that there is space for lots of different ways of thinking mm. about particular. Um, kind of doctrines, for example, um, and I really like, I really like the idea that we don't have to choose one thing, but that we might recognise that. Um, so in the in the book, I particularly work with kind of feminist, black, liberation, and post colonial theologies altogether. Mm -hmm. I like that I don't have to choose yeah. one, but they can all contribute and um, uh, help me right theology that might help people flourish and thrive. Mm. Yeah. I was thinking as you're talking about, you know, the the way doing theology from like a the perspective of of trauma. I was reflecting on my own experience mm. um, and thinking um, so there's kind of there's one part of the the history of like trauma for me which is uh, in like big pentecostal charismatic sure. mega church yeah. type life. But um the next kind of season was was kind of external in, in some ways to the church, which was a season of infertility and mm. pregnancy loss. And um, at the same time as that, like one of our very close friends um, diagnosed and then and then dying of a mm. brain tumour. And it was, I think what struck me over that kind of long period of time, like upwards of nine years yeah. of kind of sitting with all of that. And it actually is, it sort of never finishes in, no, in that sense either. Going, but, yeah. but it's an identifiable kind mm -hmm. of period of time mm -hmm. for me, I suppose, is how it changed my experience of 
many environments I found mm. myself in um, and certainly within church spaces. So like songs mm. that um, – and I was fortunate at that time to I think be in a church, same church I'm in now, that had – it was a long way from the kind of um, triumphant hill songs of, yeah. of, of my previous years. Um, and yet even then there was like this, this song, I think it was an old charismatic song by some – some guy that based <laughs> on um, the Old Testament kind of passage. Um, the chorus is like, he will come to us like rain, spring rain, which yeah. is which is lovely and beautiful. But the, the verse thing was, though he has torn us, you know, mm. and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, <laughs> which I think I would have, I would have critiqued. Sure. Right. I would have sat there and gone, I don't think that's a song that's particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that experience, like, and, and maybe less so for me, but then in particular for my partner, I could see that, that song was actually propagating mm-hmm. or yeah, contributing to trauma on trauma rather than pre- creating a place of safety yeah. and comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I became aware of how like harsh yeah. a lot of things sound. Yeah. Like when you're in the experience of pain, suddenly the world seems like a harsh place and how unkind a lot of... Mm-hmm theological thinking is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as you're talking about that, I'm like, I, I res- resonate a lot yeah. with like that, I suppose, because I, I'm, I know that experience of what yeah. it's like to suddenly be seeing the world differently than you used to see it yeah. and to be realizing the ways in which so many things are in fact not helping. Yeah, mm. yeah. I um, There was a particular song. Uh, do you guys, would you, do you guys know Matt Redman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he had a song called... Um, Blessed be your name. Yes. Has a chorus. Uh, uh, you, well, no, it has a bridge. You give and take away. Yes. You give and take yes. away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. I don't know if it's true, but I've definitely heard people say um, that that's a song he and his wife wrote after their ex- own experiences of, of pregnancy loss. Um, my experience was coming into church one time after I'd experienced certainly a number of pregnancy losses and that being the song that the worship band was playing and I'm thinking what mm. I, my heart doesn't choose to say this if God takes away what kind of God is that yeah. what what is this and being you know it's a when you're when you're okay it's a jolly song to sing right and everybody's mm-hmm. got their hands in the air and they're clapping away and I sat there thinking well I th- this God sucks yeah. this is he's horrible he's He's cruel, mm. and my heart does not choose to say "Blessed be Your Name." And in fact, it's—I don't think I've listened to that song in many, many years. But I certainly experienced—it's um, one of the uh, kind of clearest forms of PTSD that I'd experienced—is when I'm unexpectedly accosted by particular forms of charismatic evangelical worship music mm-hmm. when I'm not expecting it. Is massively like. I have really bad PTSD flashbacks even yeah, now yeah, with that yeah. and I'm still not uh, not okay with it. It takes mm-hmm. me back into a particular time and with a particular idea of God that is terrifying. Mm. Um, so yeah, I entirely resonate. And m- music, worship songs, hymns, that's how most people learn their theologies, right? Yeah, so if we yeah. don't pay attention to the kind of things that we're asking people to sing and what that might sound like for them, um, we are 
we are doing a disservice to the mm. people that are being formed in our communities. Most people are not doing, you know, detailed theological courses of study. They're attending church, they're singing songs, they're buying mm. the CDs or, I don't know, dating myself there. <laughs> <laughs> they're creating a Spotify playlist of those particular songs, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, and yeah, that's they're filling their car with it every day mm. and that's how they're learning their theology, which means we have to have really high standards Mm. for our theological for our for our worship music mm. and I don't think we have high enough standards for that we let people write all kinds of shit and we sing it happily and it's awful and it's damaging it's not just yeah. awful it's damaging people mm. so part of this work of like trauma informed theology is is to kind of although there's a you talked about being a builder mm-hmm. being a constructive theologian it seems like some of the work is having to Say, okay, yeah. not that. Yes. That's not that's yeah. not helping. Yeah, fact. yeah, yeah. And in fact, I don't yeah. think you can do the building work until you've done yeah. a bit of the critique work yeah. first. Yeah. And the critique's ongoing. Um, mm. Yeah. So, when, you know, is, um, <laughs> this is making me think of many things. But uh, <laughs> as you were talking about, you know, that that's not the kind of, like if that's what God is like, then God's a bastard, you know, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, I think similarly, in, in sort of a reverse way, because that kind of you give and take away is the sense of God being the one who's taken mm. away. I, I found at times the kind of prayer for um, healing, which is almost like the... the <laughs> Sorry, I wish you... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, didn't, you couldn't see my face then as I pulled a vomit face yeah, with yeah, the, yeah. said the word healing. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you know, that becomes, it's a different kind of... And so instead of like, God, you'll, you're the one who took this away, mm. it becomes... You know, God's the one who's gonna yeah do this for you. Yeah, but like, so so again, like to draw on my own experience. But like, when we were a number of years into, you know, like infertility mm-hmm. journey, and people are praying, and and I want to be sensitive to this because you know these are people I know, yeah, who I love, and who say you know things that they mean wholeheartedly, mm-hmm. which is okay. We're gonna, I'm gonna, and it, you might be years into the, the kind of journey we're gonna pray for you or fast for you or mm-hmm. do these various things. Um, and what I can see is the real genuine like heart yeah. and, and love. But I found myself thinking if God like heals us now because mm-hmm. finally enough people prayed. Yeah, enough faithful people. Enough faithful people yeah. prayed. Yeah, well, I then, had enough faith. Well, then fuck God. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes, I do know. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a long, it took me far too long in hindsight to get to the point where I would, where I was more comfortable to say to people when they said, "Oh, can I pray for you?" For me to say, "Really appreciate your prayers, but I could you, I don't feel strong enough for you to be pray for me right now." Because mm. the church I was in is very much kind of, "Let's lay hands on you and pray for you and mm-hmm. do this kind of, you know, intercessory prayer." I talk. There's a chapter on prayer which really comes out of this experience of like, um, just so weird kind of prayers. This idea that people would pray because God is in complete control. Um, but then there'd be a lot of, if it's your will, God. Mm. And and then, uh, you know, the, um, Karen would get pregnant and bring a baby to full term and it'd be healthy and happy. Um, but she's not pregnant now, so that must be your will for her not to be pregnant now. But we really like it for you it to be your will for her to be pregnant now and to be able to carry the baby through to full term. But if it's not your will, could you just make us okay with that? So can you give us peace? Mm-hmm. I'm like, what what understanding of providence is going on there? Because it is absolutely messed up. Mm. And 
kind of half leaning into a super providential, God's got a complete plan for your Mm -hmm. life, but also we can change God's mind if only we pray hard Mm -hmm. enough. Um, Sometimes there was nice little dashes of maybe Karen's sinful in some way that she needs to repent of. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, uh, definitely had kind of um, curse breaking Mm -hmm. kind of done and Mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff. And, you know, years into the journeys at times I would have taken anything you know if I thought it was going to work I'd have done it Um, I had a particular um, word of knowledge given to me um, that from a woman who was absolutely lovely very very kind very sweet you know she said Karen I um, feel like God's telling me that I can see a picture of you holding your baby on next Mother's Day oh wow I know and (sighs) I held on to that for a whole, well, not for a whole year, but, you know, for as long as I possibly could for it to be true, uh, you know, up until the point where, you know, maybe the baby will be born on Mother's Day. Of course it's not, of course it didn't happen. Mm. Of course it's not true. And so, you know, what does it do with my relationship with her? What does it do with my relationship with God? Mm. Um, So, yeah, I talk quite a lot about intercessory prayer and the re-traumatizing or mm. traumatizing nature of intercessory prayer. And um, and I'm really interested in the idea of how we consent to that kind of prayer mm-hmm. and where actually there's not much opportunity for um, for good consent to be given that is protective of the self. Um, I also say to my students, that if you want to know what your doctrine of providence is, think about what you're willing to pray out loud for yeah. somebody else. yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think um prayer comes out of good hearts, right? It's people mm. that but it's projecting people projecting a particular kind of optimism onto yeah. your onto you that you you then have to find a way of living with. Yeah. Yeah. Or not living with. Mm. Uh yeah, it took me far too long to say, please pray for me, but not here. Mm. Yeah. So <laughs> There is a lot. There's more sighing. So. <laughs> um, it's our embodied response. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. I'll just do a, like a. I'll I'll record later a ten minute kind of postscript of this podcast, which is just me sighing, just to let everyone just sigh along for a while. Yeah, that sounds really um, <laughs> very cathartic. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's there's, I would imagine uh, you've you've mentioned several, but there's there's a whole range of Christian theologies that need re-examining oh, yeah. in the light of this conversation, right? Um, and then there's the kind of perhaps more hopeful work mm-hmm. as well, which is not just, hey, all of these <laughs> things create a lot of mess and we need to, at the very least, stop. Stop the, doing stop them. Doing yeah. them. <laughs> stop with the harm yeah. would be like, uh, we've talked a lot about, um, as an aside, yeah. a lot about kind of the ways in which church has been creating harm yeah. over the last 12 days, which is not something I like no, but want it, to do particularly other than the feel to, it's, it's necessary to yeah. do. Yeah, and it's part of that giving language as well to mm. people, right? Yeah. yeah, but some people have certainly been like, but when are you going to talk about what we like should be doing? And 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 I think a part of my reflection as well, listen to all the ways in which we've said like the church is causing harm mm-hmm. and a good starting point would be to stop doing stop that. Stop doing that, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> in terms of uh, like a yeah, I guess a, um, um, a more constructive way of, mm. of of thinking about this as well. And you've talked a bit about like post traumatic remaking, yeah, um, and how that connects to kind of your theological work and mm-hmm. some of your liturgical work as well. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that and and, and what yeah. what you mean when you talk about post traumatic remaking and how theology and the church can play a role in that? Yeah, 
Yeah. So I tend to avoid um, words like healing and recovery, um, mainly because the trauma survivors that I've worked with avoid those as well. Mm. So recovery has this implication of kind of going back to what you were before. You know, I'm fully recovered um, and that there is no backwards movement for the trauma survivor. Uh, there is only kind of forwards movement if you're lucky and stagnation if you're not. Um and I avoid the word healing, in, particularly when I'm doing theological work, because, because I come out of that evangelical charismatic um, legacy where healing means, you know, zap, the big man at the front prayed for you and mm. now you're healed. And I think even now the word healing has some of that connotation um, in certain, certain mm. forms of church. Yes. So I don't tend to use that because that's not what I'm talking about. Mm. Um I use the language of post-traumatic remaking of the self, which I have borrowed um, from a fantastic uh, theologian in the US called Hilary Scarcella, whose work is whose work is brilliant. Um, and I talk about remaking as a as a work. It's a job. It's a building job, and you're remaking the self. You're you're not even putting yourself back together, but creating a new self because the fragments. There are fragments of the old self there, but what what is going to be constructed is something new and and it's hard work. Um, so the remaking has a kind of active sense to to it that's something you're doing yourself. Um, and and there are a number of elements that I think are important in that. So um, one, the first is that it has to take place in a place of safety. Mm. Um, you can't begin this work of remaking the self if you're still in danger of being traumatized. Mm. And that means for some people, this work will have to take place outside of the church mm. with the best will in the world and the kindest people. It's The church is not, not going to be a place of safety yeah. for them. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't also make our churches places of safety. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so place of safety, there needs to be some form of kind of constructing a narrative um, I think a, a, a story of what has happened to you. And I think we talked earlier about, you know, traditionally in the West, that's been a kind of A to Z beginning mm -hmm. to end kind of story. Um, more and more that is looking like artistic expression, creative kind of impulses, embodied kind of forms of storytelling or mm -hmm. meaning making mm -hmm. um, so that there's, this doesn't have to be kind of let me lie on the couch and tell my therapist. Mm. It might be that, but it could look like lots of other things as well. Um, but it, what's really important is paying attention to the body within that. So mm. trauma survivors are often, uh, or trauma theologians are often thinking about, or trauma survivors in general, but let's talk theologians, are often thinking about how do we pay attention to the body in our spiritual practices, in our or in our practices in general. So one of the things I'm, one of the, or the book I'm writing at the moment is called um, Survival, Radical Spiritual Practices for Trauma Survivors. And in that, I've got a whole load of embodied practices. So sweating, so um, exercise, eating, kind of um, bringing, yeah, connecting with your body and bringing pleasure to your body through food. Food being, of course, central to Christian mm -hmm. liturgy and Jesus calls us to eat a meal together. Um uh, breathing, crying, so kind of a, a kind of connecting with emo with emotions, um, uh, orgasms. So mm -hmm. learning to bring pleasure to the body again and connecting between kind of mind and body, um, 
and I th- oh, sleeping. That's the other one. Sleep oh. is a spiritual practice, right? Now you talk about language. Exactly. <laughs> so paying attention to the body, really, really important. Mm, um, mm, beautiful. The Often that means people end up going to things like yoga, Pilates, mm. acupuncture, um, massage therapy, breathing therapy, Wim Hof. Um, I'm really interested in what can the Christian tradition offer mm. that isn't traumatizing and destructive mm-hmm. uh you have to look quite hard though turns <laughs> out um and then the kind of final part of that remaking is a reconnection with with society reconnection with the world and that might mean going back to church and becoming part of a church community it might mean going to a new church mm-hmm. it might mean not going to church at all but finding community in other spaces mm. often it includes some something that's referred to as the survivor's gift in that what they might use their experience to help other people so uh, one of the things I find fascinating is that most of the trauma theologians that are doing good work are trauma survivors themselves, yeah. trying to give stuff to other people's um, part of their survivor's gift, whether they wouldn't necessarily term it that, but I think you can certainly see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's, perhaps as a, yeah, last part of our conversation, uh, talk a bit about liturgy because mm. you've done a lot of work in this space as well. Yeah. Um, and that's formed a part of your thinking about yeah. how the church can be uh, perhaps a helpful partner mm. in post-traumatic remaking. Mm. Um, I come from a church tradition similar to probably mm-hmm. charismatic evangelicalism, yep. some form of kind of Pentecostal charismatic yep. environment um, that um, does not tend to think of itself as liturgical. Mm. Um, but I know from um, hearing you talk that um all churches that, that all churches are liturgical, liturgical. communities yeah yeah, yeah. um so i just want to note that mm-hmm. now um and then maybe you can reflect on how you see liturgy perhaps in in spaces mm-hmm. you know the kind of work you're doing you're now sure. in anglican church um kind of doing liturgy yeah. work there but then maybe we'll think a little bit mm-hmm. about how that might also translate across into spaces where the, the liturgies are less um, explicitly yes. spoken of or yeah. named as such and yeah. what it would look like to, to translate some of that. So yeah. let's, let's start with the kind of work you're doing. Yeah, and, okay, and cool. See if we can go across. Um, yeah, so I, um, I would usually say that all churches are liturgical churches and uh, we're either really explicit about that or, uh, it's, or it's really implicit. But liturgy, um, kind of tran- r- roughly translated from the Greek, means work of the people. Um, and we've we've used that then to kind of um, uh, we, we, the, the, the word liturgy has been co-opted in particular ways so you might talk about the liturgy and that will mean the Eucharist but actually it, it's broader than that so what what interests me is I guess I'm a committed Anglican I'm part of I'm part of the Church of England um, and I'm yeah I'm I'm in that um, because my spiritual life and my academic life and my faith life are kind of all wrapped up in one mm. for me it's been really difficult to write things and then not lend in liturgy because I don't right. really know how how not to do that mm. so when I when I wrote the when I wrote the dark womb and I'd done all the kind of theological reimagining it was a natural move for me to say and then how should we pray right because I'm really interested in the relationship between liturgy and theology mm. and I think um I think that's probably even more, it's it's important in churches that have explicit liturgies. Um, and I think it's as important in churches that don't. So our, our, the way we pray, the way we worship publicly and corporately shapes what we believe. 
and what we believe shapes how we pray. So mm. that these things are so entwined. And if we have crappy theology at the bottom of it, then we'll get crappy forms of worship that do damage to people. Liturgy, gathering together and uh, engaging in worship together, whether you call that liturgical or not, shapes and forms us. Mm. Um, so, you know, um, I would kind of lean into kind of ritual studies at this point, but um, it doesn't matter how ritualistic your worship is. Um, it's probably more ritualistic than you realise. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> rituals shape and form us, yeah. um, individually and corporately. And if you're not aware of how the rituals your community is enacting are shaping and forming people, then you are at risk of damaging them and um, shaping and forming them in in um, unhelpful ways, malforming them. Um, and I think all all churches are at risk of this. Mm. Um, and particularly when the lay members of the church aren't necessarily well theologically educated. Where are they learning their liturgy? Where are they learning their theology? It's mm. out of their liturgy. Right. And then their theology is, you know, if they're writing songs or if they're engaging in corporate prayer or if they're preaching then that's kind of being fed back into the community. So for me, it was a really natural, I've thought about theology, therefore I need to think about how we pray. And in the dark room, I write a series of uh, prayers that are for individual use, so kind of private devotions, and then a series of um, liturgies that are for corporate use, Some of one of which has got a Eucharist in it, but some are for very much kind of use with uh, non-church people, um, and then there's another one that's a kind of little, little liturgy to be done with friends that, you know, you, uh, a person who's experienced pregnancy loss could gather a group of friends around them and do a little liturgy. Mm. Rituals form us, but they also have the capacity to move us into new spaces. And so um, I think in the experience of pregnancy loss in particular, you'll get, you get kind of stuck in a space where you're mm. not, you're neither parent nor not parent. Mm. Um and how do you then kind of bring a bit of closure to that? Actually, a, a, a formal ritual or a semi-formal ritual can be really, really healing mm. and really, really, um, uh, yeah, can kind of move you forward at, mm. into a new space. So thinking about liturgy, the way we pray and kind of with a particular focus on corporate prayer, um, I guess because I've been damaged by that, I'm really interested in thinking about how we do that in ways that aren't re-traumatizing for people, but in ways that also might promote that remaking mm. that might mean that the church is a safe space. Uh, one of the things I think about as you're talking is, because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, so I guess it's probably no surprise I'm thinking about it now, but I've been thinking about our our tendency to universalize a lot of ideas mm -hmm. in, in Christian theology. Um, I think about the way in which, for example, Christian theology speaks about sin mm. and the kind of universality of sin. Um, and uh, aside from just the word itself, which mm -hmm. might be, I apologize if that's triggering to people. Yeah. Um, you put a whole load of content warnings yeah, yeah, at the start of this yeah, yeah, one, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'll take some time. Uh, <laughs> the, the kind of reflection, so like taking, say, like a particular, say, biblical or mm -hmm. scriptural idea, of how all have sinned, for example, mm. um, which is taken out of a particular kind of yep. theological argument to a particular community and then kind of plastering that over 
everybody mm. in a sort of indiscriminate way, mm. such that someone who's maybe just been abused mm-hmm. or experienced harm done to them by somebody else comes into a church space only to find that the main confession they're now having to make is about their own yeah. sinfulness. Um, it strikes me that there's some there's some questions to navigate Absolutely. there, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think um, there's a tension then between what we want to hold to be true and what's useful <laughs> in corporate contexts. Mm. Um, and I would... I would certainly argue that a trauma-informed church would do some good reflective work around. Um, so, like in the um, in the Anglican Church, you know, we have various prayers that um, emphasize our sinful nature, but we also have options within. Uh, so, our, our worship, as I understand it, is much more flexible than the Anglican Church's prayer book in New Zealand. Right. Um, we have options where you can substitute in a different prayer that perhaps emphasizes. Um, the ways in which uh, our relationships with each other haven't been helpful rather than kind of condemning everybody, mm. you know, to sin. Um, yeah, there, there are, there are. so when you've got a written liturgy, um, particularly one with p- flexibility, you've got options to kind of switch in and I would, I would kind of want a trauma-informed uh, leader to be making those kinds of choices mm. that are... Um, yeah, giving space for a different kind of reflection. I think theologically speaking, sin is one of those ones where I just really, like, I hate the word, I hate dealing with it, I hate the concept. I find it such a masculinized mm. idea. Um, and yeah, I, the more I've been thinking about it, the more I think, oh, yeah, some some feminist theologian needs to do some really good mm strong work on that um in not in non in more implicit liturgical churches Mm. um you don't you don't have those kinds of written forms of format of of worship where you can substitute in a you know a different collect or a different prayer at this point so i think in some ways it's even harder because what you really need then is a is a is leaders who are genuinely trauma-informed understand and know their know their con- context, their congregation really well. So relationship is really important, which means I don't think um I, you know for loads of reasons I think mega churches are really bad ideas. But but this would be for another yeah, one, right? right? Like yeah. how do you know mm. your people? Mm. Uh, even if you have kind of good forms of pastoral care, kind of working down that you know you only have to look at someone like Mark Driscoll and think, yeah, you you damaged a whole load of people and you never really had to deal with it because. Mm. You were so far removed from the people. That's not that's not what a priest is. Yeah, for, for me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's really I think it's really hard, and I think you know that means you, your worship leaders need to be really sensitive mm. to what music they're selecting. You need to think really carefully about what kind of environment you're creating for worship. You need to think really carefully about who you're preaching to. Uh, what words you're pre? You know what are the actual words that you're using. What does a prayer ministry look like what does an altar call look like um but ultimately what is the theology that's underpinning it and Mm. part of my anxiety when i reflect back on the kind of churches i was involved in is that the theological depth underpinning the leaders was so shallow i don't think that they would have any capacity to to handle Mm. this because what they what they had were the answers they had learned 
and there was no kind of real um, critical engagement mm. with theology. Um, but also there's this sense that, um, you know, yeah, I mean, things I things I'm anxious about. One is I think complementarian churches. I don't know how they are how they can be trauma informed because because of some of the language they use about submission, wives submitting to husbands, mm -hmm. children submitting to parents. I don't know. I don't know how they will do that. Um, I'd love to hear from a complementarian church leaders who were thinking about what it means to be trauma informed. I've never encountered one. Um, but also mega churches, big mm. churches. Mm. Once you're once you're at a point where you can't know everybody in your church, how are you how are you going to handle that? What does mm. that what you know What does that look like? And churches where scripture is, you know, fundamentally true, and there's no opportunity for critical engagement. I don't see how you can be trauma informed. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I if you're going to take some of the language in the Hebrew Bible to be, you know, this is what God did, then you're not going to be able to have yeah. a trauma informed church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you do hear that pushback sometimes against this kind of stuff, which is like, oh, it's all very nice to say we should care about people who are in pain, but ultimately, got to give them the truth, you know. What does Jesus say? Love God, love your neighbour. Yeah. Like, just start there, for goodness mm -hmm. sake. Mm -hmm. Forget the rest of it. Like, yeah. That's that's all I'm really yeah. interested in, is what does it mean for me mm -hmm. to love God and love my neighbour? Mm -hmm. And loving my neighbour, for me, means that I need to be trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive, trauma-responsive, because most of my neighbours are traumatised these mm. days. Mm. It's interesting thinking about that kind of church spaces without kind of written mm. liturgies. I guess, you know, a part of what um, would, a part of what gives churches like that a sense of kind of like, look at what's possible for mm. us is that there is, a, is an apparent kind of spontaneity. Now, interestingly, like over time, that spontaneity often turns into just rep repetition. Repetition, absolutely. But kind yeah. of spontaneous repetition. Yeah. Uh, repetition where, to... spontaneous where everybody knows what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the, 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 whether that's the service format itself or even mm -hmm. just the prayers that particular yeah, people yeah, yeah. pray are going to start yeah. sounding yeah. the same absolutely. over time. Yeah. It's just kind of a fascinating thing with all this yeah. like scope. We've all got our own yeah. little baggage yeah, that yeah. we bring into yeah. our, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's interesting to think about how the kind of the lack of written liturgy, which in some senses is seen as like a strength, mm -hmm. is seen as this possibility to be able to respond, be responsive in the moment yeah. and be yeah. sensitive to what God is doing or, mm -hmm. or whatever, um, is in this sense then creates a more challenging landscape. So. Yeah. Because, yeah, like you say, every because instead of like even in, in a case where maybe someone isn't particularly theologically trained, but if they've got a written liturgy they can work their way through, then it yeah. gives them like scaffold to basically. Absolutely. And they yeah, don't actually yeah. have to make anything up for themselves. No, no. Um, no. Whereas what you're talking about, yeah. there, is a, there is a different Absolutely. kind of challenge for yeah. everybody who's yeah. then in the public Yeah, and there is gathering. some evidence mm. to suggest that um, post-evangelicals, particularly those that have experienced forms of spiritual abuse within the church, are gravitating towards more explicitly liturgical mm. churches because they're safe. Mm. Um, and there's something about, you know, being participating in a liturgy that's got 2,000-year-old roots, you know, that looks... I'm always fascinated as a kind of liturgist at this, you know, the similarity between the Eucharist that I celebrate, you know, on a Thursday night in our community 
and the kind of Eucharist that's written in the fourth century, they're essentially the same. Mm. And there's some, so there's something about being part of a tradition mm-hmm. that isn't perfect, but um, has this kind of longevity within it. Um, there's something about knowing exactly what's going to happen. Um, that's very safe. Mm. And my own, my own experience was that after, um, after 15 years in the evangelical charismatic church, um, I actually ended up going to the Catholic church that I'd grown up in. Um, I went to the 7 PM service, um, because it was 45 minutes long. There were no children and there was no coffee afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it was perfect. I sat at the back. I was very angry with God. Um, but I went through the motions because none of the words had changed since I was a kid. And that was very, very reassuring. Mm. And the same thing happened every week. Mm. And I could not handle, and I still can't handle the unpredictability of uh, a charismatic evangelical church. Mm. And I genuinely don't believe that the spirit works in ways that are re-traumatizing to people. Mm. So I'm not sure what's going on in those mm. in those places where people are being traumatized mm. or re-traumatized by what's considered to be the work of God mm. in the community. I don't I don't believe that's what God does. And I don't believe the spirit moves in those kinds of ways. And so, yeah, I'm not sure what's happening there. But for me, that isn't the work mm. of God. One of the um one of the phrases that has, I guess, just kind of emerged out of my own experience. Because mm. I, you know, I participate in a church community, I have to lead one. Mm-hmm. Um and um you know, it's its own context. Rather you than me. <laughs> yeah, I get to spout all this stuff, but I don't actually have to lead a church community. I think um, one of the things that kind of rings in my ears every time I am in front of people, and it's, I think, largely because of my own experience I was kind of reflecting on earlier was, how will someone in pain hear mm. what I have to say, you know? And that's kind of become probably my yeah. my, my mantra for, like, communicating in public yeah. space. Good. Um, it's a good mantra to have. But I'm aware that... Um, for people maybe who haven't experienced pain in those particular mm. kinds of forms or maybe it's trauma or whatever, may not see the ways in which that is such a necessary kind of conversation. Mm. Um, so I think the kind of work that you're doing is um, incredibly important in this space. Thank you. And I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. I'm yeah. glad I'm doing it too. I mean, <laughs> in some ways I'm sad it needs to be done, but... Yeah. In other ways, I think the church, I, I left the evangelical church in 20, 2011 and the, as I can see in, even in the last 12 years, the church conversation more broadly around trauma has really moved on. It's mm. had to because of the revelations that have come out mm. and, you know, and continue to come out. Mm-hmm. We've, we're only scratching the surface. Um People are doing good things and that gives me hope yeah. that, um, yeah, the, 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 the church, the body of Christ can be, uh, can be better. Well, that's a hopeful note to you. <laughs> I'm not known for my hopefulness, but there's a little taste of it. <laughs> it's nice to get a glimpse. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for talking. Thank you. Thanks for the conversation. Awesome. So there you go. My conversation with Dr. Karen O'Donnell. Thanks so much uh, to Karen for generously sharing so much of her time while she was here with me to have this conversation for you. Uh, Thanks as always to Reese Michelle for taking these audio files that I give him in whatever shape they are and turning them into something listenable in your ears. Until next time.